Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Today on the Virtual Voyage, we're doing something we've never done before. We're heading back to a site we've stopped at previously, Tel Hatzor. As a reminder, Tel Hatzor is the largest biblical-era site in Israel. As another reminder, when we last visited the site, I enlisted the help of an expert in Hatzor, Dr. Shlomit Bechar. And I'm so excited that we'll be touring the site again with her, especially because she just completed an exciting summer of excavations at Hatzor. Shlomit received her PhD from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and she has been a leading staff member of the excavations here at Tel Hatzor since 2007. And now she's the director of the excavations in the lower city at Hatzor. She's written a number of articles and even co-authored a book on the site. You all remember just how much knowledge Lomit had to share with us last time, and I'm certainly looking forward to another chance to learn from her. We're just arriving at Hatsor now, so let's hurry off the bus and meet back up with Shlomit. There she is. Shlomit, welcome back to the Virtual Voyage. Hi, everyone. It's such a pleasure to be back here again. I had such a great time last time, and I'm really excited for our new tour today. Before we even enter the site, Shlomit, I'd like to take a moment to honor the memory of someone who was an incredibly influential archaeologist at Hatzor, Professor Amnon Bentor of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and he passed away in August. And I understand that you knew and worked closely with Professor Bentor, and I want to make sure his memory is not forgotten, especially as we stand at Hatzor, where he spent so much time. Would you tell us a little of his story and his significant contributions at Hatzor? Of course, it will be my pleasure. Um, so I worked with Amnon uh, since uh, 2007, uh, since I worked uh, at Hatzor, and we worked closely together throughout the years. Um, and then uh, he was co-director of the excavation with uh, Sharon Zuckerman, um, who was my advisor and my mentor. And uh, she passed away in uh, 2014, at the end of 2014. And after that, I became a co-director with Amnon at the excavation. So we worked much, much uh, closer together. I learned so much from, from Amnon and from Sharon and from actually from every single person that I've ever worked with at Hatzor. But for focusing on Amnon, I learned so much from him, um, not only about the site, but about the archaeology of the Southern Levant, um, how to write articles, how to not write articles, um, how to how to um, identify what is the important uh, thing and what is less important and he just, he was a great teacher, and I was very lucky to have uh, the opportunity to work with him. Before we head over to the area you excavated this summer, remind us a little bit about Hatzor. Geographically, where in Israel are we? When was the site founded and by whom? And then what are the major events that we should be aware of as happening here at Hatzor? Okay, so we are now in the Upper Galilee. Um, if you look to the north, you can see uh, Mount Hermon, which is the highest mountain in the country. And if we would have come here in a few months, 
you would actually be able to see snow on this mountain. Now in the summer, there is no snow. Um, if you look to the uh, east, you can see the Golan Heights. Uh, to the south of us, you can't see it, but this is where about 15 kilometers from here is the Sea of Galilee. Um, and also to the north of us is the Hula Valley. Uh, this is a huge valley. Uh, very, lots of agricultural works are being uh, done there today. And this valley was a huge swamp in uh, previous times until it was uh, dried up in uh, modern times. Um, and this, of course, all of these uh, environmental surroundings uh, affected Chatzo, the economy of the site, the politics of the site, the site is sitting on a major junction of uh, main roads that were used for as trade networks uh, during this time. So uh, this is our surrounding. The site was first established uh, in the early Bronze Age, so sometime in the third millennium BCE, uh, but only on the Acropolis. It was only in the Middle Bronze Age, so sometime in the 18th century BCE, uh, or perhaps even before, but there is a big debate on the date of the establishment of the site, which we won't get into. Um, so it was sometime in the Middle Bronze Age, the site was established uh, as this huge city, both the Acropolis and the lower city, uh, measuring about uh, 200 acres, uh, which is about 84 um, hectares. So this is a huge site with an Acropolis and a lower city where uh, temples were found, uh, mainly temples actually were found, a few residential areas on the Acropolis. We also have um, administrative uh, palace uh, and also temples and open, uh, open air uh, cultic spaces. Um, so we have all different kinds of uh, architecture. Um, but as I said, this is a huge site. So 200 acres is a huge area. Um, and only a small, small percentage of the site was excavated because if you remember, I said that the site was established in the early Bronze Age in the third millennium BCE on the Acropolis. And on the Acropolis, uh, settlement was uh, continuous until the end of the eighth century BCE. So over uh, two millennia of uh, settlement uh, comprise uh, the upper city of Khatzol. In the lower city, which is the larger part of the site, which is uh, about 70 hectares, uh, this part of the tell uh, was only settled in the Middle Bronze Age and the Late Bronze Age, so only in the second millennium BCE. And this is where our excavations are focused right now. Uh, we're focusing on these periods where when Chatzo was this very large, very important Canaanite center, uh, not only in the Southern Levant, but uh, we see it today as the southernmost Syrian city. So it was part of the Syrian world uh, during this time, part of the ancient Near East uh, during this time. And we see this both uh, in texts and in the material culture that we find at the site. So the major events that we should uh, keep in mind uh, for this period is first of all, the establishment of this greater Chateau of the lower city, sometime in the Middle Bronze Age. Sometime in the 15th century, around uh, 1475 BCE, um, Chatzol, together with the entire Southern Levant, came under Egyptian uh, administrative system 
following the conquest of the southern Levant by Tutmos III, the Egyptian king um, of the of uh, the 18th dynasty, uh, who brought the whole southern Levant under Egyptian rule. Um, so this is a second very important event that occurred during this time. Uh, we also have uh, uh, in the 14th century we have the Elamana tablets the Elamarna archive actually, uh, where we have tablets uh, that were found at the site and tablets that were found at other sites, recording the correspondence between different kings and the Egyptian empire. And then in the middle of the 13th century, around 1250, 1260 BCE, Hatzor was destroyed in a large conflagration. And following this destruction, uh, only the lower city was resettled for a very short period of time something like uh, 30 or 40 years uh, when uh, the city was uh, resettled in a much smaller, much less monumental um, nature than it was before. So Shlomit, I want to talk about your discoveries at Hatzor this summer. But first, most of the virtual voyagers aren't familiar with what an archaeological dig looks like. So what is the schedule of each day like? What is the wake-up time? What do meals look like when you're hard at work in the field? And what kind of roles do volunteers have at the dig? Wow, that's a great question. And uh, I hope that um, what I tell you now not only does not scare you, but will make you want to come and join us uh, next summer uh, at our excavation. So starting with not being scared, uh, Wake-up time is around um, 4.15, 4.30 a.m. And the reason for that is that at 5 a.m., the bus comes and picks us up for the tell. The tell where we stay is right across the street from the tell, so the drive is not very long, um, which gives us a little bit more time to sleep in um, and not having to wake up very early. Um, for me personally, uh, this summer, I had uh, my baby girl with me. So I had to wake up very early in order to get her ready because she came to the field with us in the mornings. Um, but most people wake up usually like 15 or 20 minutes before the bus comes. So you have more time to uh, sleep in. Uh, so once a bus picks us up, we go to the sides. Uh, we raise the shades uh, that we left down the previous day. Uh, we get our tools and um, the area supervisors uh, give everybody instructions. Uh, now, we uh, don't refer to the people that work with us as volunteers. Um, we are team members uh, because we are one big team and everybody's working together. Um, and every, there's, uh, of course, there are differences in experience and uh, other differences in roles and responsibilities, but we look at it as a whole team. Usually I say that when we find something, it's not somebody that found it. We found it, the excavation, everybody, the whole team found this. Um, but of course, um, when, uh, you, when somebody finds something, it's a, it's a whole deal and um, it's one of the highlights of the day. So after uh, everybody gets instructions, uh, we start working doing um, moving dirt around, doing bucket chains. Um, if we find pottery or bones or seashells or flint, we save all of these in different uh, bags uh, that we get from the uh, area supervisors. Um, we save samples of dirt for different analyses that we do. Some go for flotation uh, to float organic material that we can save for later analysis. 
Some go for wet sifting, uh, where we uh, sieve uh, all of the dirt, and then later we sort uh, everything into the different kinds of finds. Because, for example, uh, bones of fish or bones of reptiles or birds or um, different rodents, you you usually don't see it by the naked eye. So we can only see it if we look very carefully at the sediments after they have been washed and dried. Um, so this is why we do uh, wet sifting. Um, and so after we start uh, working a little bit um, on this, um, it's time for the first break of the day. At seven o'clock, we have our coffee and tea break. Um, we drink uh, this really great coffee that our administrators make for us. And we have uh, cookies and cakes and uh, sit and talk and uh, daily announcements uh, is, 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 uh, during this time. Um, and then we go back to work until uh, 9.30 when we have uh, breakfast. Uh, breakfast uh, is brought to us from uh, uh, where we're staying. This is a very fancy breakfast, actually. Um, our, some of the visitors uh, that came to the site this year uh, told us that uh, we are in the running for the best uh, breakfast on the tell. And these are people that visited many excavations this summer. So uh, it was very great to hear. We have um, all these different pastries and, uh, and uh, vegetables. We have pasta, we have uh, shakshuka, which is a very well-known Israeli dish. Um, different kinds of bread and cheese and trina and all of these different uh, things that we have in the field. Uh, our excavation is uh, ecological excavation and is a sustainable excavation. So uh, all of our plates and utensils and all of that are uh, reusable. Um, and at, at the end of each day, we put them in a tray and it's washed back at the kibbutz. And all of the leftover food is left for the sheep. The uh, vegetables are left for the sheep that grow, uh, that are raised in the field where we are uh, working. All of the other food is left for the chickens uh, that eat everything. Uh, so we try to be very sustainable in uh, this regard. Um, and then after uh, breakfast, we go back to work. Uh, we work until um, around uh 12 30 something like this and then we pack up everything and by quarter to one we walk out to meet the bus and we leave back to the kibbutz we arrive there at 1 p.m and then we wash pottery all of the pottery that we found during the day this is our time to see if any of the shirts have any um, um decorations on them if they have incisions impressions do they even have any writings on them? It, it happened uh, a few times that uh, somebody found a shirt and then during pottery read, uh, washing, when they washed it, they found cuneiform uh, writing on it, on them. So this happens during pottery washing. So it's a great time of the day also because amazing finds are found during that time. Um, after we finish pottery washing, we go eat lunch uh, at the kibbutz in the dining room in the kibbutz. And then people have free time until around five uh, where we have pottery reading. Pottery reading is an activity that is of course not mandatory. It's only for people that are interested, but um, we give an introduction uh, to how to identify the different types of vessels and the periods that they should be dated to. So bowls, 
cooking pots, store jars, all all different kinds of vessels. We explain to the team members what they should uh, look like and what is a typical late Bronze Age cooking pot, what is a typical middle Bronze Age cooking pot. So if they have a cooking pot, they can tell me this is middle Bronze Age cooking pot. And this helps us date the finds from each of the area that we're excavating, each what we call locus. A locus is the specific area which where each person uh, excavated a specific context. For example, uh, it's a floor of a room, it's a pit, it's an installation. Each of these things gets a specific number or a specific locus number, and then we can later date it using uh, the, the ceramic assemblage. This is just an initial dating. We will later go on to our labs, and when we put out all of the pottery, not just for each day, but all of the pottery that was found in each locus, then we can have a wider understanding of things. But in the field, we have the initial dating of each locus, and then we can say, oh, Right now we are in the LB, LB1, and then the next day um, we see that suddenly all of the pottery is only middle bronze age. So the area supervisor knows that we have now moved from the LB1 to the middle bronze age, and it has its own implications. And this is something that the team members help us uh, to do. They learn how to uh, do the pottery reading and the pottery sorting. Also, during this time, we also gather information uh, from the pottery baskets uh, for future analysis. So it will just be easier in the database. We put all this uh, different kind of information. So later we can uh, ask the database questions and immediately get answers. Um, after pottery reading, sometimes we have evening lectures. Uh, these are lectures either by the staff of the excavation uh, or uh, guest lecturers. Um, we've had uh, talks about of course, there is introduction to Chatzo and uh, introduction to pottery reading, of course. Um, I give some talks about uh, the studies that I'm conducting. Um, another uh, staff member um, gave a talk on, um, on uh, cult and art, uh, on figurines. We had a talk about uh, uh, ceramic uh, manufacture, pottery manufacturing. Um, we had a talk about um, stone, ground stole, uh, stone tools and basalt in general, the use of basalt in general uh, in the area, um, and just many different kinds of talk, talks like this. But we also have, uh, traditionally, we have a talk by a kibbutz member to explain to us what is life on the kibbutz. Um, what was uh, kibbutz, what did the kibbutz used to look like how is it compared to uh, life on a kibbutz today to understand where uh, people are staying? What is the significance of this place? When uh, you come to stay in a kibbutz in an excavation, you're not only doing archaeology. You're also going to the grocery store to buy food or to buy cookies or snacks. You're going to the to the laundry um, machine. We have a special accommodation at the kibbutz where the, this kibbutz still has uh, like large industrial uh, washing machines and dryers. So we can do our our uh, washing in the kibbutz and we don't have to do it by hand. If anyone that is listening has ever been to an excavation, you know how horrible it is to wash your clothes during the weekend. Uh, the worst thing for me is washing the socks. Um, and it's just horrible. And here we have this amazing conditions that we can just, you buy a coin for, I don't know, something like $5 
and all your laundry is washed and, and two people can do it together. So we washed all my clothes, all my daughter's clothes and, and other staff members' clothes. So lots of people together in one machine, one dryer, and it's finished and it's, it was amazing. So anyway, you meet people in the grocery store, you meet people in the laundry uh, uh, place, you meet people in the swimming pool and people start talking to you because you're a foreigner in this place and you get to know them and they get to know you and you want to know what is a kibbutz? What is it special? Um, why are there kibbutzim in Israel? How are they like before? What are they like now? So it's important for me um, to have uh, this kind of uh, uh, evening uh, lecture for uh, the team members who come to Israel. Some come for their first time um, and uh, it's important. Um, and then at uh, 7 p.m. we have dinner and after that it's free time until the next day at 4 a.m. where everything starts again. Well, that is an amazing summary of an archaeological dig and so helpful, so thank you. As we continue here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM, Hatzor has two sections, the upper city and the lower city. What section were you in this summer and had it been excavated before? Uh, so we are uh, only excavating in the lower city of Hatzor. In the past, I've excavated on the Acropolis, um, but now I focus all my uh, resources and energy in the lower city of Chatzol. So the lower city has been excavated before. Um, first, it was excavated by uh, John Garston, who is the one who uh, identified the site at Chatzol. He had a, a very short excavation uh, season, uh, which has never been published. Um, and after he finished his uh trial excavation at Chatzor, uh, Yadin, Igael Yadin, who is the forefather of Israeli archaeology, he came to excavate uh, at Chatzor, uh, and he had several excavation areas, both on the lower city and the Acropolis. Um, after his excavation, uh, Sharon Zuckerman had a small excavation in the middle of the lower city uh, between 2008 and 2010, and since 2010, nobody has excavated in the lower city. Uh, so this is the renewed excavations in the lower city. And our excavations are actually um, attached in a way to one of Yadin's excavation areas. So um, Yadin excavated um, in, in, like I said, in several areas in the lower city. In three out of the six or seven uh, excavations er areas that he had in the lower city, he found temples or cultic areas. And where we are excavating right now is one of these temples. So this is a royal temple, a monumental temple. Uh, the uh, deity that was worshipped was Baal or Hadad, which is the same deity that was worshipped on the temple uh, on the Acropolis, which is called Building 7050. This is a very uh, large building. It is very similar uh, architecturally to uh, the Orthostats temple, which is where we are uh, digging. And the temple where we are digging is in the northernmost part of the lower city of Chatzol. Um, some people, um, some of the most uh, recognizable finds that were found at Chatzol were found in this temple. Uh, one of them is the lion Orthostat uh, that is very well known from Chatzol. It was found in this temple. Another one is a sheet a metal figurine of uh, probably a king uh, uh, that was found also 
uh, in this temple. Um, also, uh, Yadin found uh, liver models uh, in this model. This is a cuneiform uh, tablets. This is clay uh, tablets. On these uh, tablets, um, they recorded um, the interpretation of um, a burning of a liver of a sheep or goat. So the the king or the official or this elite person would ask a question, and by the way, uh, the smoke rose, or I I don't really know how they uh, made some some interpretation of what is going to happen, who will win in the war, uh, what will happen uh, with agriculture. All of these things um, were. Um, it's kind of like fortune telling um, that uh, they uh, were doing using uh, livers. And then this was later recorded on uh, these uh, clay tablets. So Yadin found two of these um, in uh, the, this uh, temple. And this is actually, these two tablets are actually the only two tablets that were found in Chatzot in their original context. All of the other 15 um clay tablets that were found at Chatzot were found out of context, either in later Iron Age context or uh, or in a um, mud brick debris or as a fill in, a, in later context or um, on topsoil. Some of the most interesting uh, tablets at Chatzot were found on topsoil. None of these were found in their original context except for these two tablets. We expanded the area that uh, Yadin originally excavated, uh, and we opened two uh, sub-areas in this uh, place. Um, and what we found in these areas are some really interesting uh, things. First of all, we expanded a pit that Yadin excavated, and he identified this pit as a favisa. A favisa is a pit to uh, bury uh, cultic um, uh, paraphernalia. Uh, so, for example, if there is uh, some kind of ceremony that took place, at the end of the ceremony, you can't just throw away the vessels that were used. You have to uh, uh, make like a ritual burial of uh, these vessels. So this is what a favisa is. And Yadin identified this pit as a favisa. When we excavated this pit, we found numerous bowls that were found upside down so the base is facing up uh and the bottom the 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 opening of the bowl is facing down um and uh we found uh numerous of these ball bowls all over the place all of them were broken we didn't find one intact vessel uh we also found the chalices which are kind of like a bowl on a foot uh we found oil lamps uh, chalices are are considered to be incense burners um, we found oil lamps, we found some storage jars, some cooking pots, and we found lots of bones. Um, but all of these things could potentially also be uh, domestic waste. However, it is located right outside of the temple area, right outside of the, of the wall that defines the temple area. Um, so... Uh, in addition to that, some of the bowls had suit marks on their inner part. So maybe they were used as lighting uh, fixtures uh, or like mobile lighting fixtures that people can use as oil lamps. Um, and maybe they were used in the ceremony. So this makes us um, imagine the ceremony that took place. So 
I'm going to um, do some, leave your uh, imagination. So think of yourself as a Canaanite person who is participating in this ritual. And it's night. And you hear uh, the, the sheep and goats that are going to be sacrificed. You hear their cry. Um, you hear the chanting of the priests. Um, and everything is dark. So it emphasizes all the experience. You smell the incense, the oils and the perfumes that are burnt in the incense burners. Maybe in your hand you're holding a bowl that has oil and perfumes in it as well, which not only uh, get, um, gives you the smell of the incense, but also creates all of these shadows. And the shadows also emphasize this whole ritual experience. So to imagine all of this uh, being done at night, in our opinion, it emphasizes the whole ritual experience that was uh, done in this area. Um, so this was uh, one context that we excavated. Um, we also excavated uh, something that Yadin defined as uh, a pottery kiln. We were not able to find a kiln. Uh, Yadin uh, uh, drew on the on the the plan in the the publication has like clearly what this kiln looks like. But we found something completely different. We found an installation uh, that was filled with miniature vessels and bones, many, many bones um, of, of all different size, uh, ones that are as big as my head and some that are tiny rodent and fish bones and all were in the same context. And this was a huge installation with um, uh, channels uh, that were uh, leading somewhere. Um, and, uh, and like I said, numerous uh, uh, miniature vessels that are usually um, perceived as votive vessels, but they were all found broken. So we're not sure exactly what this is. And this also, uh, we need uh, to have a further um, investigation of this uh, area as well. But one of the most surprising things that we found was in a new area that we opened. Everywhere Yadin excavated in his uh, popular book, he says that 30 centimeters under topsoil, he found the remains of the Late Bronze Age, the last phase of the Late Bronze Age. When I excavated with uh, Sharon Zuckerman in the lower city, it was exactly the same, 30 centimeters under the topsoil. We found the heads of the walls of the Late Bronze Age. And this is exactly what we were expecting to find in our area. And indeed, 30 centimeters under the topsoil, we found walls. Um, but as we said, these were the ugliest walls that we've ever seen in our lives. They were just not even straight, but kind of parallel walls. Uh, going uh, east-west. Um, and the soil next to these walls was very, very dark. Um, and it was filled with uh, worn pottery. And we even found coins uh, dated to the 4th century CE. Um, we found uh, pottery that was uh, maybe even Roman pottery. Um, and, and we found a complete sickle, metal sickle, um, and as we went more down, um, we finally found 
pottery that was imported from Lebanon in the 19th century CE. So we knew that we are excavating something modern. But even though we had something modern, we continued excavating it archaeologically. So all of these walls were drawn and measured and photographed. And we took samples, soil samples from around these walls to understand what kind of agricultural activity was taking place in this area during this time. Um, the area that we excavated, this is something I forgot to say before, but the entire area of the lower city of Katso is privately owned uh, by uh, local farmers. And the area that we excavated is uh, not, it, it's an agricultural land, but uh, for, for herding sheep, the land is not sown. So I talked to the farmer because we were on very good terms. He came to visit us every day and had coffee with us and and wanted to see what we're doing and uh, to explain the finds. And we were on very good terms. Um, so I asked him what happened here in the 19th century. What kind of uh, agricultural uh, goods did uh, your family grow? And he told me, you know, in the beginning, um, we, we were not growing um, agriculture. We had sheep here from the beginning. Um, and we had herders, local uh, boys that were herding the sheep. Um, but then the sheep business didn't go very well. And we moved to agriculture. I don't know exactly what um, agricultural goods or agricultural produce was uh, grown here, but uh, the family put aside the sheep and moved to agriculture. We said, okay, this is uh, the story. Once we realized this is modern, we wanted to continue excavating until we reached the late Bronze Age. So we started removing uh, these walls. And one of our team members, she picked up, uh, by removing these walls, she picked up a stone of this wall. She turned it over. And on the other side of the stone was an incision of a sheep. So we had archaeology and history go hand in hand. We had the actual evidence for the herder that was sitting with a sheep. He was bored. He took another stone. He etched this uh, drawing of a sheep and he left it there. And then when this area was turned into an agricultural uh, land, they took the stone and they used it to build the wall for these agricultural um, produce. And it was very, very emotional for everybody because it really shows how these two things go hand in hand. So then there was a, a big layer of eroded land uh, in this area. Uh, luckily for us, we had a team of very, very strong people. This was a group of Canadians uh, and a group of American students that are very hard, hard workers. Um, some of them work in agriculture or in mining. So the work was... Um, not foreign to them. Um, so they worked extremely hard and we reached the late Bronze Age levels um, or what we thought was the late Bronze Age levels, but we continued excavating and there was no architecture, nothing. Only pottery, only bones until we reached architecture in the one area and it was Middle Bronze Age. So... In the late Bronze Age, we were able to identify in one place a floor 
but maybe saying a floor is giving it uh, too much um, credit. Um, it was more a living surface. Pottery and bones laid in a flat uh, manner in on one level. Um, so we once we identified this, we of course took photographs and and uh, recorded it and everything and continued uh, digging more. And then we found another um, layer of uh, living surface. And all of this was just in one square. Uh, maybe in this one square, the excavators were more uh, experienced. Um, I, I don't really know because we didn't find this in any of the other squares. And all of the team members, as far as I know, have the same experience and it was just very surprising, but it led us to understand that this whole area to the west and the south of the temple was actually an open area in the late Bronze Age. So up until now, up until the 2023 season of uh, the renewed excavations at Chatzor, the perception in archaeology was that this temple is built in the middle of this very uh, vibrant and um, uh, very uh, complex and compact uh, urban uh, fabric of the city, that we should be expecting houses and uh, administrative buildings and all of these things right next to the temple. And this is actually the exact reason why we opened this area, because we wanted to identify the annexed buildings of the temple, the buildings where all the administration is taking part where are they storing all of the all of the grains, all of the oil for the ceremonies? These are things that we wanted to find out. And this is why we opened this area of excavation. But actually what we found out is that there are no buildings, no such buildings, at least not on this side, that it seems like this temple is isolated. It is at the end of the city. It's standing in isolation, at least in the late Bronze Age. In the Middle Bronze Age, it's a whole different story. But it's in isolation. And what does this mean? Is this open space part of the temple periphery? We, we found on many of the pottery shards, on most of them, this uh, very thick and very mysterious patina, uh, like a layer of a, a very thick layer of some kind of residue that we don't know what it is. And we found a huge, uh, we think it's a cooking pot. Uh, we found it, of course, in the last days of the excavation. So we don't know if it's a cooking pot or a very well-built uh, taboon or, or an oven. Um, so this will wait for next year, but um, we, we don't know what was this area used for. Was it like woods? In this area, it was just an open area. Was it like a park with only uh, small weeds? Uh, was this a gathering area for people to come and stay before uh, doing the ceremonial uh, rituals in the temple? Is this an area where animals were corralled before they were uh, sacrificed? Um, is this an area um, where uh, industrial um, activities that are connected to the temple were taking place. What is this area? We don't know. And open spaces are areas that are very, um, let's say, um, under-recognized in the ancient Near East in general, not just in the Southern Levant, because everybody focuses, us as well, 
everybody focuses on excavating palaces and temples. Few people excavate uh, domestic buildings. This is something that we were hoping to do uh, this summer uh, as well. Uh, but open spaces, who excavates open spaces? If you don't have anything, you close it and you move to a different place. But here we had the very unique opportunity to actually excavate an open space. Um, and in addition to that, um, when you think of open space, you think of maybe uh, a place that is paved, a paved open space. This is something that is excavated. We know of paved courtyards next to temples. There are the temple courtyards. They are always paved or the, the large piazzas in uh, right outside of gates or inside of gates. They are also uh, usually paved. But here, we this is a packed earth surface. And from uh, doing some reading, I found that uh, this is uh, something, like I said, it is very uncommon um, in the archaeological record. In, in texts, there is a m mentioning of like a square in a, a Babylonian text. Um, or very large streets. Um, for example, there is a street in, uh, I think it's in uh, Babylon that is between 25 and 31 meters wide. My assumption is that this is not what we have here, such a large uh, street, but maybe this is the street that leads to the temple. Maybe this is the main road that leads to the temple. And these kind of roads have not been excavated at Chatzor at all. So this is, again, something very special. And next year, what we're going to do is um, expand this area of excavation, expand it more uh, to the um, connection, to understand the connection between this open area and the temple itself. Is there a wall that is surrounding the, the temple? Um, so this open area is not part of the temple space, or is the wall maybe including this open area so it is part of the temple space and of course we will take many more samples and uh, we will do lots more wet sifting and flotation and this is a project with lots of collaborations with many international uh, scholars from all over the world the u.s uh, germany england just all over the place so, Shlomit, what were some of the special finds from this year's excavations in the lower city at Hatzor? So, apart from uh, the architectural finds, which were very special finds, um, and I didn't go into all of the arch architectural finds, um, we also had some small finds that were uh, really exciting. One of them was a, a piece of a metal sheet figurine. This is probably a female figurine probably dated to the Middle Bronze Age. And um, these are not very common um, in general. Um, and this find was extremely exciting for us uh, because, uh, not just because the find is exciting, but also because uh, our office manager is writing her PhD on metal sheet figurines. So it was great coincidence, and she wanted to find a metal sheet figurine uh, during the season, and her wish came true, so that was amazing. Um, but the other uh, really great find that we had uh, was in uh, one of the squares or uh, that we excavated. We reached the Middle Bronze Age uh, levels. 
Um, and we found a toggle pin there. And then we found another pin uh, made of lead. One was made of bronze and the other was made of lead. And then we found a bowl. And next to this bowl, we found a complete flint um, sickle blade um, about this big. So like 10 centimeters, which is, I think, like four inches long. Something like this. Um, and then we found a complete bronze X head, which is was also like uh, 15 uh, centimeters, which is, I think, something like six inches long. Very, very thick. Um, almost, um, almost, I would say almost an inch thick uh, in its thicker part. So very, very well preserved um, in addition. And then we found um, the, the girl that uh, found it thought it was a bead and she was very excited to find, find a bead. Um, but when we came to look at it, we saw that this bead is actually a cylinder seal. And when I talked to our cylinder seal expert, she said that this is one of the, maybe one of the only cylinder seals of this type that was found in context. So this is a middle bronze age uh, uh, cylinder seal. And usually these are found in later contexts because they are being reused. And here it was found in its original context. And the, it's, this seal um, is very uh, difficult to work on because almost every single part of the scene depicted on this uh, seal is unique. So the scene itself is not unique, but the shoes are unique and the headdress is unique and the dress they're wearing is unique and what they're holding in their hand is unique and the gesture that they're doing in their hand is unique. So everything is unique and to put everything together is very difficult for the experts. But luckily for us, we have the world's best experts working on this right now and they're very excited to work on it and of course, this is a this was a great find, and we know what's going to be on the t-shirt next year. Well, Shlomi, we have certainly enjoyed visiting Hatsor with you and learning about your excavation. So, thank you for sharing. If people are interested in joining you for the 2024 Hatsor Lower City excavations in the summer, how can they get involved? Well, first of all, they can uh, write an email to us. The email is telhatso uh, in one word at univ. U-N-I-V dot Haifa dot A-C dot I-L. In addition to that, um, we also have a website um, where you can find all of the information on uh, the season. Also, if you missed any part of the scheduling of the excavation, all of this is also on our website. And there is a lot of information on the website regarding the season and a little bit information about the excavation and all of that. So uh, we can also link the website in the show notes. Um, yeah, also the way to apply for the season is also through our website. Fantastic. I will pass all of that out so everyone has that information. Shlomi, thank you so much for joining us here on the virtual voyage to share Hatsor with us. We've loved learning about your work in uncovering the city's past. Thank you so much, Abigail. It was, again, such a pleasure to be here. And I hope that we can do this again. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue our adventures in the land of Israel.